Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and money. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Greg Boris, who is currently the president at PowerX Communications. Uh, welcome, Greg, and thank you for joining me today. David, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really excited to join you today and uh, chat a little bit. That's if I great. if I can if I can interject, in addition to running my own consulting uh, company, I'm also the undergraduate uh, sport management program director at Adelphi University here on Long Island. Yes, I noticed that as well in your CV on LinkedIn, and I, I'm going to get to that, no question about it. But right. uh, um, as I've said, uh, probably to the to the ad nauseum response from my uh, listeners, I always feel that it's best to uh, start at the beginning. Um, and that's where I'd like to start with you. So uh, where did you grow up? Tuckett, Rhode Island. Uh, baseball fans should know uh, the oh, name wow. Pawtucket. Uh-huh. Uh, Pawtucket Red Sox and going to those games as a, as a young kid uh, certainly had an influence on my professional career. Sadly, they're no longer there. They're in Worcester. I know, I know. That was, uh, I think, a huge mistake after, you know, having God, a thousand years of connection to the community there for whatever reason, the geniuses that are currently running MLB decided to, to shut that franchise down. Um, uh, sad day, a sad day for baseball, I believe. So Indeed. you grew up watching those games and I'm assuming, uh, like, like most of us, uh, you were also, um, you played little league and then, uh, on from there. And that is what, uh, got you hooked at least as far as baseball was concerned. Correct. Yeah, I loved all sports and played all sports. That was probably uh, my downfall as an athlete. I feel like I'm pretty competitive in virtually any sport because that's we grew up in a different time, you know, and, and that's what you did. You rolled with the seasons. It was hockey season. We played street hockey. We'd rent the rink uh, in our town and play ice hockey. Um, we played football during football season. And then when baseball came around, we spent a lot of time playing baseball, whether it was wiffle ball, organized baseball, boys club baseball, Uh, We couldn't get enough of baseball. So I have a passion for sports in general, and I was very happy that kind of the second half of my career, I just spent almost 20 years working at probably the sport's highest level with the Players Association. So you went from organized baseball to disorganized baseball. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, So um, did you come from a family that was uh, oriented towards sports, or was this something that uh, you were the, the trailblazer in your family? Uh, from a profession in terms of being in the industry, I'm probably a trailblazer. And I probably wouldn't share this with you if the Supreme Court didn't rule differently in 2018, if it was. Um, I grew up, and maybe sadly in certain respects, in a family of sports gamblers. Uh, my dad was one of 11 children, his older brothers, he's the baby, the you know Depression-era kids. Pawtucket, Rhode Island, for some incredible reason, has this history of uh, somebody had sent me an article once where you know the the phone company and the and the um, uh, the state police had uh, raided like 125 gambling parlors in Pawtucket. It's not a big a big place. Uh, so my yeah, my introduction to sports, and it's probably why I funneled into it as a business because from a very early age I grew up analyzing sports and learning things behind the scenes because my uncles, uh, they were professional gamblers, bookmakers. uh, And I learned 
uh, in that environment. Uh, again, at the time, not something that uh, you'd be very proud of uh, to go to school and a teacher would ask you if you were related to the Boris who was on the front page of the paper who was arrested in a sting operation. So uh, be it as it may, um, it really trained me to kind of have a different eye on the sports world passion. I don't like gambling. I'm not a big fan of the legalized sports gambling because of the history. I could see what it can do to families. Um, but um, I think I do have to, if I, you gave me truth serum, I do have to admit that that background was probably what propelled me to be passionate about this and want to uh, pursue it as a business at a time when no nobody really was doing that. Wow. Um, that's, that is quite a background. I, I have to say that, you know, I, I, I haven't run into anybody yet who, uh, can, can, uh, boast of, of that sort of, uh, launching pad, so to speak into their career. Um, so, um, you, you continued to play throughout school and then, um, you went to college in Massachusetts as well, correct? Well, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a license. My family was divorced. So my sports was limited to some early youth leagues and then street games. I didn't uh -huh. play organized sports in high school because I really didn't. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to ask for things. So I wouldn't have a, a dependable right to practices and things like that. So uh, I pl but I played sports virtually every day, whether it was pickup basketball, street hockey, uh, whatever it was. So I always remained active um, athletically. I just didn't really pursue it organized uh, in high school. I know my our football coach in high school, uh, who was also the baseball coach in our junior high school, and we had a, a liking. Um, when I got to high school, I didn't play high school football. He didn't talk to me uh, until the day after the football season ended our senior year in high school. Then he said something to me, and I was like, oh, I didn't know we were on speaking terms. He was upset that I didn't play football. But um, uh, after high school in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, if you're familiar with Pawtucket, it's a very – it was a very industrial town. It was the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution, going back to Samuel Slater and all of that history. Uh, so it's very blue collar. So after uh, high school, I didn't go to college. I kind of applied to URI, University of Rhode Island. I got accepted, and then I get a bill. <laughs> and I was like, well, who's going to pay for this bill? I don't think college is in, uh, on my uh, horizon. So I went down to the factory right down the end of my street, which was a big, there was a bunch of big mills. And one of them I went to was called EF Rose. And it was a candy manufacturer, candy company, big, big commercialized uh, candy. So I got hired as the floor boy on the lollipop floor. And so that was so what I did. You were one of the lollipop kids. Yeah, I was the floor boy and my whites and I was, you know, stacking pallets of lollipops to points unknown. And after doing that for a couple of months, I realized, you know, maybe this is not kind of my future. And then somebody turned me on to this concept of junior college, which I had no idea. And so for 250 bucks, I could go to junior college for a semester. So I applied to Rhode Island Junior College, and that's what kind of whetted my appetite to pursue college uh, even further. And so when I finished three semesters at Rhode Island Junior College, um, I wanted to start in a September um, at a four-year school. And so I went to an advisor and she said, well, what do you want to study? You know, well, we can look it up. And obviously this was 1979, 1980, pre-internet, right? And I said, well, I love sports and I love business. Isn't there a way to mix the two? Um, you know, aren't sports teams businesses? And she said, well, it would make sense to me. 
So to her credit, she dug in through some research and found, I don't know how she did it, like a needle in a haystack back then. She found that there was a college in Miami, Biscayne College, which is now St. Thomas University, that a couple of years prior became the first uh, institution in America to launch a freestanding undergraduate sports administration program. So I said, well, if there's only one, that's where we're applying. So I applied to Biscayne College, was accepted. I didn't go on any school visit or anything like that. Uh, got on the plane, went to the school, fell in love with the coursework, sport, intro to sport management, sports public relations, all of those topics. The campus itself, very, very small, but the Miami Dolphins trained there. So we would see Bob Greasy and Don Schuler. So the environment was for a very tiny uh, school. It was um, exciting. The Baltimore Orioles had their spring training uh, facility and fields there. Uh, so it kind of wet my appetite, but I really, as a New Englander, I didn't really take to living in South Florida. So I did a little more research and found out that UMass Amherst had a program called Department of Sports Studies, but it was buried under the phys ed program. And that's how the sport management programs evolved back in the late seventies. They were offshoots of phys ed programs as physical education and um, uh, budgets and running athletic departments started to become a little more sophisticated in the late seventies. Those PE institutions realized maybe we should create a master's program to help these students come back with their PE degrees and get trained on the management of sports. And so that kind of created this whole next wave of sport management programs, sports administration programs, to now with there's there's just numerous uh, programs. But our generation, we were kind of the pioneers. There were no people ahead of us who sat in those seats and went through those programs and went out into the field. Um, so it was it was quite adventurous and it was a lot. It was very exciting back in those days because we really weren't following in any path or footsteps. We were just trying to find our way in the industry. So a trailblazer once again. <laughs> It was fun. That, that, seems, it was that fun. seems to be a pattern for you. Yeah, um, my I, I have somewhat of a connection with Biscayne and, and St. Thomas. I recruited a player from Biscayne by the name of Dane Johnson. Um, he was a right-handed pitcher who the Blue Jays took in the second round. Unfortunately, I didn't get to represent him, but many years later, his son became a prospect, and I tried to recruit him as well. <laughs> and then, um, God, I'm trying to remember when it was, probably in the mid-'90s, I think, mid-'90s to – early 2000s, I was invited to come to St. Thomas and address their sports management uh, class, which uh, turned out to be interesting. They had some some uh, pretty interesting questions, those kids. They were they seemed to be um, on the ball. I, I recently had a situation where I uh, addressed a, a sports management class at my alma mater, Arizona State, and those kids it was funny because they had a, a zoom set up like this and they had a camera in the front that was showing me. And I asked, can you set something up so I can see who's raising their hand with any questions? So they set up a camera in the back of the room. And so now I'm able to see what these kids are doing and they're there on their computers. They have to let them have their computers so they can take us. They're on their computers on, on uh, Facebook, on Reddit, on, you know, everything in the world, but what it was that I was talking about. So, Quite yeah. a contrast from those kids at St. Thomas. So, all right. Yeah. So you you go to UMass Amherst uh, uh, again, night and day difference from from Biscayne and, and yeah. St. Thomas. And so then you 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 get your degree from there, and then from there, uh, where was your next step? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good listener. So I listened to other students and everybody had to do an internship before you got your degree, undergrads and grads. And so in different classes, I would hear, especially the grad students, you know, oh, the commissioner's office in baseball has a, uh, a couple of internships. I'm going to vie for that. And people were going NBA and NFL. And at the time, um, uh, you know, horse racing was still big. People were interested in paramutuals and working at racetracks. Racquetball was a big thing. People were interested in going into careers in facilities and, and management. Uh, but as I said, I loved all sports, so it really didn't matter where I went. And nobody was talking hockey, right? So I went to my advisor and said, hey, have we ever had anybody do an internship with the National Hockey League office? And luckily, about a semester or two before me, they did. And they said, why are you interested in that? I said, yeah, I'm interested in anything, but that sounds like a good one. And so they called the uh, NHL office and said, hey, you had one of our interns. Would you be interested in interviewing another one? And they said, yes. And I took a bus ride down from uh, Amherst to uh, New Jersey, stayed with a, a buddy of mine from UMass who lived in New Jersey. And in the morning uh, of my interview, first time I had ever been in Manhattan, took a bus by myself from Newton, New Jersey, out to uh, uh, the Port Authority, aimed for the Empire State Building and hooked the left up 6th Avenue to the NHL offices and um, managed to uh, be offered that internship uh, in the public relations marketing department. There were probably about 15 employees at the NHL office at that time. Today, I'm going to take a wild guess and say maybe there's 500. <laughs> I could be uh, shorting that. I don't know. But again, the industry was just it was still kind of in its mom and pop phase, which made it uh, very exciting. So uh, the internship was without pay. It was for credit. They gave me commuting costs and um, housing was going to be a big issue. Uh, so when I graduated, I went back to Pawtucket, Rhode Island. I said, OK, how am I going to make this work? I kind of just jumped into this, not really thinking about having to live in Manhattan on uh, no salary. Uh, so I ended up doing what I, what I could to save as much as I could. So I worked a, went to another factory job that summer, worked 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning in a shoelace factory. I was a bobbin stripper, stripping threads off of uh, bobbins. And then from there, I went and worked with the city of Pawtucket recreation department from seven 30 to 12 30 in the afternoon. And a friend of mine, his girlfriend's father who had contracted Parkinson's wanted his house painted. So I said, give me a few hundred bucks. I'll paint your house. Uh, and then I go home and sleep from about four to ten, ten thirty, and then go to the, go to work. Saved every penny I could, and I still really kind of didn't know where I was going to uh, stay during my internship. And then, as luck would have it, you need a lot of luck to be successful in any industry. I went to a bar one night and ran into a buddy uh, who was uh, who I worked with at a hospital when I was in junior college, and he was going to school at Fordham. And we hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. We exchanged, you know, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's still going to Fordham. Hey, I'm supposed to do this thing at the NHL in New York City. He was all hyped. I said, yeah, but I can't find a place to live. I may not be able to do it. And he says, do you mind sleeping on a couch? I said, I'll sleep on the floor. He says, well, we're living off campus this year. If you want to crash on a couch, you could come crash with us. My roommates won't mind. And thank you to my uh, my pal Dave Riccio there. Uh, that set up my... Um, uh, my abode, which fit into the budget of not getting uh, any salary. 
Uh, so I, I commuted from 185th in Southern Boulevard in the Bronx, down the D train, walked up to the Grand Concourse, down to uh, Rockefeller Center, and was in the middle of working in the NHL office, which was, for me, a kid from Pawtucket, was, you had to pinch me. I mean, I couldn't have scripted anything like this. It was like a dream, and for the next 39 years, almost 40 years at this stage, it's been, it's been kind of dreamlike. Wow, that is quite a story. <laughs> that is quite a story, and and I I know that uh, later on your your hockey journey brought you back down here to South Florida. You worked for the Panthers, who yes. um, their arena now is about fifteen minutes down the road from where I live. So um, you know, I, I guess as as my unofficial grandmother told me many years ago, you grow where you're planted. So. You spent many years in hockey with how many different teams? Uh, after the NHL internship, and I was lucky, uh, while I was at the NHL, we had hired a uh, VP of communications from the Rangers to come over, John Halligan, the late John Halligan, a PR guru in the hockey industry, and he hooked me up with the Knicks. Uh, so I ended up working game nights uh, for the New York Knicks and all college basketball games at the Garden, and that was for pay. So I was getting about 25 30 bucks a game. Uh, but that helped build my resume. And after the NHL kept me on beyond just the semester that I was uh, initially supposed to um, serve my internship, they kept me on for the entire season. And then after my internship, 13 weeks expired, they then started paying me, I think it was five, $6 an hour. Um, so I was like high on the hog. Now I was rolling in dough. Uh, we're uh, working in uh, the city. But after the season, I had to go back home and did the whole snail mail resume thing. And then um, luckily for me, I got a call from uh, John Halligan at the NHL. So the New York Islanders who had just lost the Stanley cup finals for the first time in five tries, were looking for a uh, third person in their three person PR staff. Would I be interested? And I said, of course. And so they highly recommended me. I came down to uh, Long Island for an interview and was hired, fortunately, by the New York Islanders. And for those who aren't into hockey history, the New York Islanders, this was 84. Uh, they just came off um, a run of 19 consecutive Stanley Cup playoff round victories, playoff round victories, four straight Stanley Cups and one round short of a fifth. Uh, so I was embraced and welcomed into this world, um, and I was surrounded by, I believe, seven future Hall of Fame athletes and administrators, um, so in, in 1984, the New York Islanders were pretty much the preeminent franchise, pro sport franchise in all sports in America, given their success uh, on and off the uh, on and off the um, the ice. Uh, they were innovative as a business, uh, and Bill Torrey, the president, general manager who ran the organization, um, and the head coach Al Arbor, they took a liking to me. I came at it with a different approach. I studied this stuff. So I had some innovations, some exciting ideas. And um, one of the other things that helped me uh, when I first started, my first day, uh, my boss and the assistant, uh, Les Wagner and Jill Nee, they pointed to some boxes in the corner and they said, we don't know what those do. Uh, the NHL sent them to us and we, we figured we would just let you figure it out and do whatever the NHL needs us to do with those. Those boxes happened to contain IBM desktop computers. And this was the dawning of the IBM, the digital age. Nobody had a computer on their desk. People were still using typewriters. So having moved to Long Island and not really knowing anybody here other than the people I work with, I spent a lot of time after work figuring out how I can use this IBM 
desktop computer to help do what I want to do, what the team's trying to do. Um, and this was pre-Windows, so everything was, you know, disk copy, A colon, backslash, all of that stuff. Um, and I managed to do some innovative things with it, and that got me a promotion after my first year to assistant director. And then I got a real big wake-up call how the industry works. Um, I wasn't making a lot of money with the Islanders, $13,000. I was living in a one-bedroom bedroom in a house in Long Island, and my college uh, bills were piling up, and I had to pay them, so I had to go and look for either another job or get a raise. And the NHL reached out to me and said that they had an opening. Would I like to come back to the NHL PR department, work at the league? It would be a big bump in my pay. So I was excited. I said, oof, this is just what I needed. And uh, they said, well, if you're good with it and you want to do it, we have to have Steve Ryan, their VP, reach out to Bill Torrey to get permission to talk to me, right? That's the big thing. You know, Dave, in sports, you need permission, yeah. right? So so I'd, a couple of weeks go by and I don't hear anything. So I call my contact at the NHL and I said, hey, what happened with that job? And they said, oh, we still want you. But when Steve called Bill Torrey, Bill Torrey wouldn't let him talk to you. And I was like, he can't do that. I'm making 13, 15, at this time, maybe 15, $16,000. I said, how can he do that? So I see Bill, and this is like toward training camp. So I see Bill and I said, Mr. Torrey, you know, very intimidated by this is the guru, right? Mr. Torrey, can I talk to you for a minute? And, you know, yeah, what do you want, kiddo? I said, you know, the, you know, the NHL has reached out to me and he stopped me in my tracks. He said, kiddo, kiddo, I know where you're going. I know what you're going to say. And I'm going to tell you what I told them. I need to get through training camp. And as soon as I get through training camp, you and I will have a conversation and then you'll be entitled to do whatever you want. So just give me a, you know, give me another week or two and we'll chat. All right. Whatever that means. And so a couple of weeks go by and it may have been like the day of the waiver draft or whatever. And I'm at the office at the desktop computer doing something and the phone rings and it's Bill Torrey. Gregor is Les there. My boss, Les Wagner. We played basketball together. Loved him. He hired me. Uh, he's not in yet, Les. Okay, when he gets here, tell him I want to see him. So normal stuff, bigger than he's giving him the waiver list or whatever. So Les comes in. I said, Bill called. He wants you to stop by his office. So Les goes down to the office. 15, 20 minutes go by. Les comes back into the office, and he stands next to me while I'm by the computer. And he looks at me, and he looked a little shaken. And he says, well, congratulations. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I guess you're the new PR director. They just let me go. And while he's sitting there saying that, I'm I'm like, what the heck's happening? The phone rings. It's Bill Torrey. Gregor, come on down. I want to talk to you. Now I'm thinking I'm the next one out the door, right? So I go down to talk to Bill, and he said, Greg, you know, we talk, I talked to Al. I talked to the players. You know, they respect you. You know the game. You're a hard worker. We want to move in a different direction, and I'm going to let Les Wagner go, and I'm going to offer you the job if you want to take it, publicity director. I was 26 years old. I was the youngest PR director, I believe, in professional sports at that time. Um, so totally overwashed with a whole groundswell of emotions. Uh, but, you know, they were taking a shot at me or a shot on me uh, with me. And, you know, I welcomed the opportunity. And that led to uh, that was 86, 87, stayed with the Islanders another six years or so. And then went down to Florida with Bill Torrey after sir. <laughs> After Bill being told by a new ownership group, hey, we don't want you here. And then me, as just reporting to Bill, Bill told me, you're going to follow me right out the door. And we both did. But uh, the NHL expanded with uh, Disney and Blockbuster. And 
they had an opportunity to hire Bill Torrey and Bill took me with them. So uh, when they moved you into that new position, they also gave you a raise from 15 grand to 16 grand. Yeah. I think it was bumped <laughs> up for, uh, to about 26,000 maybe, which was huge wow. for me. Yeah. That was a big bump. That was a you big know, bump. That was a big bump. A 26 year old back then. Yeah. That was yeah. a big bump. So, yeah. so let me ask you this and, and um, I'm asking you out of, uh, I will freely admit total ignorance. Um, what are the duties of a PR director for a national hockey league uh, team? And, and, you know, particularly at that time. Well, the good thing was at that time, this was again, the dawning of the digital age. I had studied kind of this field. So I had a lot of ideas in innovation uh, and I wanted to use all this emerging computer stuff. So my, the way I attacked the business was different than how the business of sports PR directors was handled probably up to around that point. Up to that point, most of them were older gentlemen, you know, the, the, the fedora wearing, you know, cigar smoking PR guy who's at practice with the beat writers and, you know, making sure they get all the tidbits, giving them some little info here or there, you know, writing press box uh, passes and overseeing the uh, press box and setting up interviews and all the normal media relations activities that we see even to this day. Uh, but I brought a little bit more of innovation to it. One of the first things I did, you might get a kick out of this, uh, because I was studying this and this was a profession to me, I found it kind of odd. And I learned pretty fast that at that time, early eighties for many was very relaxed. There were a lot of people behind the scenes, a lot of hangers on a lot of things that would just shake your head today by comparison that was going on. But I was a pro, I went to school for this. I want this to be, you know, a real business. And one thing that drove me crazy was that we would serve beer in the press box, right? And so we had a lot of people who would be given um, overflow seats, would sit in the press box, have their beer, their popcorn. And finally, when I was, when Bill promoted me after the first week or so, I said, Bill, you know what? What do you think if I take the beer out of the press box? And he almost fell off his seat laughing. He was like, oh. wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. These were civilians you're talking about? These yeah. were not press people or, or yeah. anything related that these were civilians? Well, because the Islanders are selling out most of their games, the right. off-ice off officials, like the goal judges and goal scorers, they, part of their compensation was they would get two tickets to every game. So they would give them to their friends. But after a while, the Islanders said, hey, we're losing money on those seats. Let's just sit them. The press box was very big. Let's sit them at the end of the press box, right? So they would come. But media people, too, would come up and have a couple of pops, right, you know, at, mm -hmm. the, at the big keg there. And so I said, I just really want to get the – I want to get the uh, beer out of the press box. And he says, go for it. It's your domain. He said, but, boy, you talk about an aggressive first move. You're going to get a lot – you're going to make a lot of enemies real fast. And I said, well, yeah. I don't – I'm not here to be liked. I just want to do my job. And I think we all need to be professional. He said, I don't disagree with you. Um, so uh, that's kind of uh, how that started. But the, the, the press box was the big domain of the PR person at the time. Uh, back then, hockey PR um, directors didn't travel with the team. The home team handled the PR for the visiting team and the home team. Uh, you had to handle. Really? Yeah. You had, nice. to, you had to position. He didn't do too much. Um you know, they would send you their version of the media notes. You would incorporate it into your notes. They would send you the press list. You would write out the, the press box passes for their uh, traveling party. 
Um, if there was an injury, you'd go down and get an injury update from their trainer if they wanted to give it to the visiting team, uh, I mean the home team. Uh, there was a lot of the same standard responsibilities of a media relations person that exists today existed existed back then. Now there's obviously in certain markets, many more of them with the explosion of digital media and all the yeah, reporters yeah. then. However, yeah. with that said, back in the 1980s, if you know New York sports, you know, the, especially with the Islanders being a dominant team, you know, our press box was full with New York, uh, the New York Times, the Post, the Daily News, Staten Island Advance, papers from New Haven, New Jersey. They would be covering all the big major dailies, would send two reporters at least to every game, a photographer at every game. And it was big. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of competition between the tabloids in New York for information. So it was a lot more stressful, I think, back then for the PR directors because of the the competition between the media. I don't get that sense. Maybe it exists today, but as an outsider, I don't get that same sense of competition, cutthroat um, that goes on behind the scenes with the baseball reporters or other reporters today. I think it's uh, a little less of that today, a little less competition, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, okay, so Islanders, Panthers, and then um, you went from there on to other ventures. Yeah. And talk about that for a moment, how that transition occurred and, you know, where that led you, please. Okay. Well, taking the job with the Florida Panthers was exciting because I, when I left the Islanders, you know, John Pickett, who owned the Islanders, it was a cash cow for him now, right? He had paid his players well. He knew he was at a turning point. He either had to build a new building, which was going to be expensive, or he had he was going to sell the team. And he had a hard time finding a buyer. Um, so we were working for the last couple of years uh, with the Islanders under austerity measures, right? We couldn't spend a lot of money, do a lot. And then when Bill gets hired and hires me as the second or third person uh, by the Panthers, our owner is Wayne Huizenga. And this guy's the entrepreneur of the moment, taking Blockbuster from 16 stores to this national chain. He bought Spelling Entertainment. He was getting into movie production, television production. Uh, he had just um, started the Florida uh, Marlins expansion team. Uh, he was uh, uh, about a half a year, a year away from buying the Miami Dolphins, right? So this was exciting. Um, so I went down and I met with the um, Bill and Wayne. And Wayne had a huge vision. And he was not going to... Uh, there was austerity wasn't part of Wayne's vocabulary. Right? So it was awesome to be able to go down to South Florida in a very non-traditional hockey market with a blank slate and an owner who wanted to make some noise. So for somebody with my background, my uh, my kind of insights and kind of predisposition to trying to be innovative and, and take on challenges, this was a great opportunity. Uh, but really what pulled me in big time was the fact that Wayne's vision wasn't limited to owning a hockey team or a baseball team or a football team. Maybe you'll recall uh, he wanted something to rival Disney, right? He called it Blockbuster Park. Uh, the media tabbed it uh, Wayne's World uh, back in the day. So he envisioned eventually selling the Marlins, the Panthers, and the Dolphins back into Blockbuster, getting his money back, and then putting the professional franchises into Blockbuster Park, anchored by a dome stadium on one place, state-of-the-art arena on the other, championship golf courses. Wayne was even into virtual reality in 1993, 1994. He was talking about doing something that would totally rival Disney. That's where his vision was. And then, unfortunately, uh, I believe it was uh, Viacom 
and uh, Paramount were up for bid on um, ITT Sheridan, which owned the garden and some other things, or ITT Sheridan. They, somehow there was a big um, acquisition at stake where some of the Redstone came to Wayne and said, Wayne, Blockbuster's a cash business. People come in and give you money every day. This bidding for this company is getting crazy. I need your cash, Blockbuster's cash, to kind of seal this deal. So you can either sell it to Viacom peacefully or I'll do a hostile takeover. And so kind of Wayne had to acquiesce and sell for the shareholders. He had to sell Blockbuster to Viacom. And Wayne came in and and, and God is my witness. We were, had a small group of the directors that he was close to and ran the, the operation for him. He came in and he was shedding tears when he told us that, you know, you were here for something bigger. I know that, but um, I'm sure that, um, you know, some the Redstone is not really going to have Blockbuster Park on his uh, agenda the way I did. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the end of Wayne's ownership in those franchises. So he then he, he went all in on the on the Marlins, won a World Series, and then he cashed out and everybody ridiculed him. But they shouldn't have. I mean, he brought a World Series to South Florida. Uh, the Panthers went to the Stanley Cup Finals in only their third year. He wanted a new arena. Um they were going to send me to Nashville, which had a, an arena, but no team because we were talking about maybe moving to Nashville and I would go out a year advance and get things uh, going there. Uh, but Wayne was a genius. Once the team went to the Stanley Cup finals, he knew, you know, there'd be so much public um, anger if the Panthers left that he even took the team public and made about $145 million in an IPO. And he eventually peeled it back, sold the um, sold the Panthers, and he eventually sold the Marlins, kept about maybe 10% because his wife, Marnie, she loved the Marnie, she loved the Dolphins. Um, and that was his kind of exit strategy from sports as if he had never been there. And he had, and he had great dreams and great vision. So I was there in that environment uh, for three, three and a half years. Uh, but we got to the Stanley Cup finals in our third year, which was great. We got a shovel in the ground for New Arena. I had just gotten married. We were expecting our first baby. And my wife was from Long Island. I'm a New Englander. And I said, you know what? Our job's done here. You know, it's There's not much more we can do except win the Stanley Cup, and that could take you forever. So I started my own exit strategy and ended up getting a job with Sports Channel New York back here in Long Island, folks I had known when I worked with the Islanders, a regional sports network that then was melded in, a Chuck Dolan company melded back in with MSG Network and spent about a year, year and a half in that Cablevision Rainbow Media world. Uh, but I was back on solid footing in New York, up in the Northeast where I wanted to be. And then um, after that merger with the Sports Channel New York and MSG, Sports Channel said, well, we're going to let the MSG PR people run MSG PR. Would you be willing to go back to New England and be the GM of Sports Channel New England? And was enticing offer, uh, but I had just gone through so many changes in my life that I wanted to stay here on Long Island. And um, I ended up working for a complete shift, working for the CEO of 1-800-Flowers, uh, Jim McCann, who was the next entrepreneur of the moment, taking the 1-800-telephone concept and melding it with this new emerging internet and e-commerce. So he was one of the uh, leaders in the e-commerce space. It was great to be uh, in the saddle kind of with Wayne, doing, uh, not Wayne, uh, with Jim doing a lot of his personal public relations, speech writing, traveling around to all types of uh, speaking engagements in the corporate world now. So now we were traveling in different circles. And while I was there, a recruiter reached out about a job with the MLB 
Players Association, right? And I was like, whoa, I'm a management guy. They probably won't even let me in the door. But lo and behold, uh, I did get uh, an interview with the MLBPA. And believe it or not, I didn't think I'd be hired, but I was hired. That's quite a journey. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I have to admit, I, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, I don't know too many who uh, had that kind of ride. Um, you you definitely had some good fortune. Um, talking to Greg Boris today, uh, president of PowerX Communications and also professor of uh, sports management at Adelphi University, and so now we're at the point where you got in contact, where actually they got in contact with you from the Major League Baseball Players Association. What year was that? 1999. Oh, okay. So you missed out on the, the 94 strike. That was tremendous fun. That's why um, I was hired. Really? Yeah. Explain that, please. Yeah. Well, as you I, know. I definitely like to hear it. I'm sure my yeah. listeners well, would as well. Well, how long have you been an agent for? Um, since 1974. Okay. So you, you, you know, all of this that, you know, Marvin Miller, right. He ran the union, um, Dick Moss. And then when Marvin stepped aside, Don fear did. And, and, and you can't argue when you think about it. And I'm sure you probably agreed and you've probably heard and read this or, or heard it explained to you in agents meetings, confidential agents meetings, that when it came to public relations, what the public thinks doesn't matter in the eyes of union leadership. Uh, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to its union members. They cannot go out, as Don Fair was always uh, like to say, you know, we can't take straw polls on the street to see which way we're going to go in bargaining. We can't do that, right? We'll be sued by our members. So, yes, you know, we understand media and public relations, but we don't have the assets. We don't have the money, Um to offset what MLB has in the PR game. So it's a game that would just be futile. We'll never win that game. Um, and the players get beat up anyway. So coming out of the 232-day strike, uh, the players, I think, were a little fed up that they were the bad guys. And they didn't understand why are we always the bad guys, right? Nobody thinks the owners are bad guys. And no matter how often you try to explain it to them, that they, the owners are always going to be seen as being owners. They do what the owners do. You're the boy next door. You're not supposed to be that guy and so on and so forth. But with that said, I think the players really uh, went to Don and Judy Heater, who ran their business side. So, you know what we right. want? We want something. We want to be in the PR space. We want at least to have something collectively, not individually, not to do the stuff that the teams do, but something collectively. Uh, and so they did a search for, um, I think there was somebody hired um, just before me, but didn't last uh, very long. Don didn't get along with him and he was pushed aside. And so it was maybe a failed attempt at something they wanted to do, but they went back at it to their credit. And after a lengthy interview process, they hired me, I think, mainly maybe because I had the team experience. I knew how teams functioned. I knew how athletes functioned. I also had that TV experience. And I just came from kind of this emerging internet piece that was unknown to most people there with the 1-800-Flowers.com. So they, um, they hired me to be kind of launch or run their first full-fledged communications uh, department. Um, and really, at the end of the day, what my job really entailed was trying to change the narrative and reshape the reputation and image of a major league baseball player. Uh, it was pretty low at that point in the late nineties. 
a lot of scars, a lot of wounds to heal uh, coming off of that strike. So, uh, well, and, and pardon me for interrupting, but it, yeah, it, it no. wasn't just the strike. I mean, there was the the cocaine trials that took place, mm-hmm. and then just the 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 myriad right. other uh, issues that had come along in that period of time to for lack of a better term, sully the reputation of players. And I think another big problem that, that, that existed was so many people, when they looked at um, baseball players, it's like, Oh, I did that. I didn't do it in the majors, but I played little league or I played high school ball, Yeah, but not very many of them owned a billion dollar trucking company, or in the case of Heisinga, a a billion dollar uh, video company. So it was easier to say, you know, hey, if I hadn't injured my knee in high school, I might have played in the big leagues. But it's kind of tough to say if I hadn't injured my knee in high school, I would have been a billionaire. So I I think that was a big part of the issue in terms of the players. I think another thing was Don Fair was very good at his job. And Don Fair was an attorney. And his background was in labor negotiations. And Don was very good at that. Um. In my opinion, not as good as Marvin, but nonetheless, very, very good at what he did. However, Don was not a warm and fuzzy kind of guy. And neither was his number two, Gene Orza. As a matter of fact, to call Gene Orza abrasive would be to say um, Shaquille O'Neal is tall. (laughs) And that being said, when there were labor negotiations going on, and there needed to be a spokesperson for the union, and you got Don Fear or you got Gene Orza versus the people that the big guns at the at the owners owners collective bargaining unit had hired. It was really a mismatch. So I I, I agreed at the time, and obviously I think now it's it's even more apparent that bringing you on board was a, a very, very good move for the MLBPA. Um, my Thank question you. that, that maybe I'm jumping ahead time wise, and I, I do want to go back to some of the issues that you had to deal with while you were there. Why did they ever let you go? Because I, I, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass, Greg. Uh, I, there's no reason to do that. Um, I don't think since you've left, they've done nearly as as effective a job as you did when you were there i think that there are a lot of places where they flat out drop the ball um in the probably what three most recent negotiations of the collective bargaining agreement at least the last two and that being said i, I think they should have kept you uh, i i you know don't know well, why they didn't uh, that 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 insinuates or implies that I wanted to stay, right? So so they you, should have made you an offer you couldn't refuse. <laughs> I, I'm, was, I'm, I'm not I'm not yeah. I'm not patronizing you. No, I, and I, I, mean I, sincerely. And I, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, but it wasn't their choice. This was my choice. I was highly paid. I was very well paid. It wasn't about money for me. I had. You know, as an outsider in the industry, you know, I'm a student in this industry, been a student of this industry since I was a kid. Right. right. And, and, you know, I know the union, I know Marvin, I know the history, the, the power, the influence that the MLBPA had. Um, and it was great to go and sit during the interview process. 
Um, and he had even met Don when I was with the Islanders. I went in to chat with him about PR and he kind of cut the Alan Price who worked with me at the NHL. She was there and said, Oh, we don't have any PR people. Why don't you come in and talk to Don? I did. And Don told me then in the late eighties, like, why do we need PR? I don't need PR. The owners have this much money up here. My job is to get as much as that down here for my players. End of story. Right. right. So it was ironic that 10 years later, I'm hired yeah. by, by the union. Um, but so much had changed. But my jumping ahead, what, what kind of pushed me out the door, and you alluded to some of this, after, unfortunately, Michael Weiner passed and Tony uh, took over. Um, and I like Tony. I really respected Tony. Tony worked for us for a long time. I worked closely with Tony in this transition as executive director, did what I could to help him. Um, but the philosophy was starting to change at the union. And again, what attracted me to the job in the beginning, and I heard from my media friends when I was interviewing for this job, oh, you're crazy. Why are you going to go work there? Oh, you're crazy. You'll be, you'll be successful if you can even get Don and Gene on the phone for a media person. And so I took it as a challenge and we did a lot. We really improved over those, uh, over my tenure. Um, but we were, what, what really attracted me there was the things you read about Don and Gene when they talked publicly, it was about principles. And all the decisions lied upon just being principled and doing what was right for the players. And, and I really, I love being and hearing that. And that's how they operated. You know, every nickel coming in and was going to go out to the players. Um, you know, it was a lean operation and it was just about the players, the players, the players. And then things started to change with Tony. And we lost some of these little battles that we didn't lose in the past. So there were starting to be some little cracks uh, and in my role as communications, you know, I'm in charge of you know managing the messaging and doing certain things. And a couple of things happened. I, I won't share all of them. Um, but one thing happened when I left kind of abruptly and no, shouldn't have been a surprise to some folks there in February of uh, 2018 was when the players were having a real hard time getting contract offers. A lot of the offers were coming in. They were similar. The players were starting to get angry. Uh, the agents were starting to go a little rogue with social media now on the horizon, issuing certain things and things that never would have would have occurred under Michael, Don, or Gene's tenure. Um, they had conference calls with the players. Players were irate with Tony. You know, we got to figure this out. What's going on? And so I would have meetings not with Tony, but with an intermediary. They'd say, "Okay, we got to come up. What do you What do you think? What do you think?" And so finally, I added enough and say, "You know what? We got to go back to the old ways." What's the muscle of this union, to use Marvin Miller's term, a Don term, a Michael term? The muscle is the players. So why don't we get the players here, the players who were on that conference call. Let's get them into New York before spring training. We'll have a meeting here, and then wink and a nod, I'll make sure the media knows that we're marching from, you know, our, our office on 48th Street over to Park Avenue with 20 irate all-star future Hall of Fame baseball players to ask Rob, what's going on here, Rob? You know, it's always been said at the union, no matter how many union lawyers are in a meeting, they don't get very far until a player shows up. And then the dynamic changes, All right, Now all of a sudden you've got the talent, the product in the room, uh, and it gets a little tougher for, um, for the commissioner and his designees. And so that was what I wanted to do. I said, look, we need to flex. We need to flex our muscles. We're going to say, we may not be able to change the CBA, but this should be a warning sign that this is this is not good. And we're not going to put up with it. And I was told, no, we can't do that. 
And then I was told, well, can you find dirt on Rob Manford? Seriously? And I was like, Seriously. <laughs> and I was like, I said to myself, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> I never knew that. I never knew that. I, I said, no. I can't play that game. My career up to that point, I'm 58 years old. I've been soaring with Eagles for luckily in their, in their, in their exhaust, right? Luckily to be dragged along here. So that, and I just could not see myself stooping to this kind of, these kind of measures. So that's why I said, you know what, you can either, you can either be nice and give me a nice little severance package and I'll go on my way. If not, I'm just going to cut it. And I cut it. I was probably the dumbest man in sports. I walked away from a big salary after 19 years of the players association without a nickel uh, in severance. Well, but with your integrity intact. Yes, um, that's more important to me. Look, I started my career in 1974, which happened to be the first year of free agency. And if you could go back and look at all of the press that that took place then, and again, it wasn't the, the, the intense coverage that has taken place recently. But if you go back and look at all the press back then, and, and, and from then until, I don't know what would be the, the end point, um, Marvin always had players involved. I mean, if you look at the pictures of him um, when when free agency, when they won the court case, it was Marvin and Dave McNally and Andy Messersmith being pictured there. And it wasn't just for window dressing. They were directly involved, and Marvin always did that. Marvin always did that. And Don, Don did it, too, to a lesser degree. Um, but I, I think, again, Don's Marvin was a labor union guy. He came from the steel workers union and he knew what he was up against and figured how to deal with it very, very skillfully. Don was going to beat the owners in court and that's a lawyer's mindset as opposed to a labor leader's mindset. And while it was effective to a degree, it wasn't as effective as it had been originally. So you lost a little bit going from Marvin to Don. And then, you know, there was, there was the uh, Ken Moffat experience, which was a joke um, after Don left. And then from there, eventually, um, I guess Gene Orza didn't want the job. And then it went to Michael Weiner, and Michael had come in as as kind of a junior partner, if you will. And my opinion, Michael was a really nice guy, really nice guy, very intelligent man. Michael was more of an academic, and from my experience, working with him as an agent in regard to issues regarding my clients, and then the labor negotiations. Michael's biggest problem was he didn't want to make any enemies. He didn't want to alienate anyone on the other side. He wanted everyone to like him. And you can't do that in that position. You're in a position where, you know, as you mentioned with Don, everything had to be for the players and kind of damn the torpedoes full speed ahead sort of thing. Michael, that wasn't his ethos. And that being said, again, there was a bit loss. And then Michael's illness took, took effect on him. And now, instead of there being one voice, um, I would call in one time about 
an issue and I would get one person and I would call in another time about an, another issue and I would get a different person. And the second person's opinion would conflict with the first person's opinion. And it was like, okay, who do I talk to, to, to get the straight shit, so to speak. And that was never available. And then after Michael passed away, um, it, it just, there was, there was more lost. So if you look at the union today and, and what it is and what it's able to do compared to back in the day, it, it, the original way the union operated, it's a night and day different operation. And what you just told the, the story that you just told, I, I think is emblematic of that, that ask of you to find dirt on, on Rob Manfred, Marvin never would have done that. Don Fair never would have done that. I, I can't imagine Michael ever doing that. Never in a million years. And if that doesn't say everything that needs to be said about that chapter of the MLBPA, I don't know what would. So, so okay, so now you walk from the MLBPA and you walk to forming your own company? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew at this stage, at 58, you know, what am I going to do? I knew the day I took the MLBPA job that I likely, and it was even communicated to me by one of the people the MLBPA I interviewed with, you know, this, the MLBPA in 1999 and pre, prior to that, you know, that was in, in sports, that's public enemy number one, right? So most powerful organization and probably in the history of sports at that time. 100%. Uh, and most, of, most effective union on the face of the earth. Yeah. yeah. And so I kind of knew having spent 15 years of my career on the management side that once I, once I step foot in the, the door of the MLBPA offices as an employee, I can kiss goodbye uh, any chance of ever probably resurfacing on the team side uh, because I spent 19 years beating up owners and going after them and going counter. A lot of it was quiet. A lot of it was behind the scenes. A lot of it was very strategic with certain tactics and, you know, doing some things just to get the player's message out there, um, you know, calling out the owners when they needed to be called out that, you know, I knew at 58, there aren't many unions for me to, uh, to kind of go look for a job. And I doubt any team in America would hire me. Uh, really? You think so? I mean, I, I can, I can understand you, you feeling that uh, a baseball team might not hire you, but hockey wouldn't have, have entertained uh, bringing you back or, or football. I, I don't have any concrete proof. Just my gut, just my gut instinct is that all these other teams and leagues, they know who's doing what and everybody yeah. pays attention. They know who I am now at, 20 years at the union, they could just do a Google search and see me and the things I'm saying in the press and doing. And it, and not to say they wouldn't want me for my skill, perhaps, and my experience and what I can bring to the table, but it might not be a good look, perhaps, for a certain organization to bring in this union guy to come into our team here. Uh, I, I think, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I think it would be the opposite. Um, I, I think that they would want someone who had the knowledge of, of how things operated on that side, simply because you'd be able to give them more insight on how to counter the strengths that whatever, you know, the union, whether, whether you had gone to work for an NBA team or whatever, um, that, that, that union would have been bringing forward in, in negotiations, but Hey, their loss and your gain, because now you're able to work for yourself. Yeah. And you're not, you're not having to deal with, 
taking orders from anybody or having your, your path forward charted by anybody but yourself and where you wanted to live and what you wanted to do. Well, that's the big part of it. And, and you know, I knew if I was going to get back on the team side, that would mean it could take me to Seattle. It could take me to wherever. And, you know, at this stage of my life, at 58, you know, I was thinking, you know, I want to stay here. Um, and what I really wanted to do, and going back to where we started in terms of my beginning academically, because when I was a student at Biscayne, you know, there were no people like me who could come back and speak to us like you speak to students today. Right. There was, there was nobody who went and sat and got a degree in sport management when I was a student who could come back and tell us what it was like. So I made a vow to myself when I was 20 years old that if I was ever lucky enough to get a job in this business, and they told us we were going to get a job in this business because it was so competitive, that I would save part of my useful life to step up my academic contributions. So when I left the MLBPA, that was my mission was to be a consultant. but but take on more academic responsibilities. I luckily, I had been an adjunct professor at Adelphi for about 20 years up to that stage, teaching a communications media relations class at the grad level. And they had an opening coincide with the year after I left um, to become a full-time lecturer, which is I teach four classes a semester. And they also asked me if I would be, they had a, um, a gap in program director. So they asked if I would be the program director. So for the last four years, you know, that's what I've been doing with my consulting work. I, in my academic, I can only hold about three or four clients on the consulting. I wish I could do more, but I can't because I do dedicate a lot of my time to the academic side. You know, it, I, I find greater solace and greater satisfaction um, being able to have influence over a hundred and some odd sport management majors and taking them behind the curtain uh, I teach sound theory of the classes I teach, but what I kind of offer too is take that theory, apply it to what we see in the headlines every day, and then take people behind the scenes, take these students behind the scenes during a collective bargaining or a grievance procedure and say, okay, I've been in those rooms. Here's what's happening, right? Here's what you're reading. Three sides to every story, right? And so, yep. you know, that really is, I think, if there's anything I leave on the table here at the end of the day is that I want to take what I've been able to gather over the last 40 years and share that with others who may want to follow in the footsteps of me and people like me. Yeah. Yeah. So compared to the Greg Boris who showed up in Miami with no clue as to what the area was like and really no path blazed for them. What is that Greg Boris like compared to the students that you're teaching now at Adelphi? Very different. Right. I came in not knowing. Right. There was no path. These students come in when you ask them. So you, one of the first questions I ask when a new student comes in or I have an open house or and somebody wants to do, you know, study sport management. I said, what would you like to do? And they said, well, I'd love to be the general manager of the New York Mets, you know. <laughs> and I say, all right. OK. How many of those jobs are there? <laughs> There's one. OK. All right. Oh, That's well, of the Mets. Yeah, one. I said, well, okay, I'm not going to poke a hole in your dream because that's, I had dreams, right? And my dreams came true through hard work. So I hope that's your goal, but there are going to be a lot of steps you're going to have to take before that, right? You got to learn a little bit more and blah, blah, blah. So I think the students today, because they see so much of the industry and the opportunities today, you know, when I was starting out, when I was with the Islanders publicity director, you know, I was serving, you know, I showed 
the staff directory in my intro to sport management class. We had 32 people on staff, the New York Islanders, when I was PR director. Then I put up their staff directory and it's on multiple pages on the internet. Yeah. Right. And, and I said, look, there's a lot of opportunities. So the difference, we had no clue. And, and if you go back to the eighties, the way professional sports teams were structured in realistic terms, almost in every sport, you had an owner, owners, Maybe you had a president, but maybe not. You had a general manager. The general manager was the boss. And then under the general manager, you had maybe somebody who was a head of business, and their main priority was ticket sales. That's it. There was no marketing department. There was no sales department. Maybe some ticket salespeople. No sponsorships. No um, promotions, social media, whatever it is now, publications, all this. The main person on staff underneath the general manager was the public relations person sports marketing as a term wasn't even kicked around till I believe 1978. So when I came in sports marketing, people had marketing positions were starting to emerge. I took my public relations um, mindset and philosophy was more like a marketer. I wasn't going to be just this plaid fedora cigar smoking guy i wanted to use pr more strategically i wanted to be a key messenger i wanted to use technology i wanted to build audiences i wanted to work with the media and help them do their job but understand i'm not going to help you do your job to hurt me i'm going to help you do your job to do the things i want you to do for me right so um so i kind of went out and kind of created that today these students have a palette of opportunities they could look at and i say you know, to parents, especially when they say, why should my student, my son or daughter study sport management? I said, why? Because today, if your student, if your child is interested in graphic design, law, nutrition, um, public relations, social media, videography, video editing, website control, marketing, sponsorship, sales, I'll give you a list of 50 different things. There's a role in sports for you. Right. It, it covers virtually every aspect of anybody's career interest you could have. Accounting, uh, human resources, diversity and inclusion. I mean, there's a role for everybody today. Back then, when I was doing this, there was one job. That was PR, or you could work in a sales department on commission. That was it. Yeah, true. I mean, they didn't even have chief financial officers back no. then. No. <laughs> when I first started back in 1974, so many people had jobs based on who were their drinking buddies. Seriously. I mean, yeah. uh, give you a good example. Um, Bob Lurie, who was the owner of the San Francisco Giants when I represented two consecutive National League Rookies of the Year for their team. Um, the, the, the guy who became the general manager there, Speck Richardson, um, he started off in ticket sales. Um, and he was pretty much constantly drunk as far as I could tell from every time I was in his presence, he smelled like a bar. And that being said, he knew the right people. Now, I mean, I I haven't repped with players since 2018, so more than five years, but the, the team people who I were, was encountering toward the end of that phase of my career were much more academic than they were baseball people. I think that they need to have a, a good mix in order to really come up with the best end result for the team and also for the fans. I think you put a better team on the field and have a better experience in the stands and also of equal or greater importance, your presence in the media, whether it's online, TV, whatever the case may be. 
So, so the kids you're teaching now are much more sophisticated than you were. How about their level of education? And the reason that I'm asking this is that it seems like education in general in this country has been severely dumbed down. You know, now, uh, despite the fact that, I, I mean, when I was in high school, there were no AP courses. So you've got kids who are graduating with college courses who who don't know the difference between Y-O-U-R and Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. And, you know, little things like that, that that really jump out, despite the fact that they have thousand times the resources that they did in the stone ages when I went to school or later on when you went to school. And, you know, that being said, do you feel that the students you are teaching now will be as prepared, let's call it, when they exit your program as you were to handle whatever challenges awaited you in the course of your career path. I think in many respects, they'll be better prepared only because we live in such a powerful information age that as long as you have a cell phone, right, you could you could do most anything and find the answer to almost any question or direction or advice. Uh, doesn't mean but are they quick- capable of using that information? I mean, yeah, yeah, you can get a lot of information, yeah. but if you don't have the capability of, of really utilizing that information properly, the information's useless, right? Yes. What I, what I find with the students that um, in, in, in sport management and, and those that I have that aren't sport management uh, students. And I don't know if it's any different generationally, but you're going to have some students who college is just an extension of high school. Right. And they're there because this is the next step. They could be athletes. Hey, I'm here because I want to play lacrosse. And Hey, I figured, Hey, I play lacrosse. I'll study sport management. Right. And that's the way it is. Uh, others though, on the high end here, they come in and they're motivated and they want to learn and they ask questions and they get involved and the student and we, and I, I hop on this from the day they set step foot on campus. Don't wait till you leave because then it's too late. And what I tell every student and their parents, when I sit down and talk to them for the first time, I said, I want you to come into Adelphi envisioning yourself, not going to college, but going to home Depot. Right. And you're walking into Home Depot with a tool belt and you don't have any tools in it because you don't know what you're going to build yet. And right now you're going to come to Adelphi and you don't know what career you're going to build yet. But after the first year, after the second year, all of that should come into focus. And we're going to spend time picking the classes that are right for you to put these tools in the tool belt. So when you leave here on graduation day, we work together to figure out what you think you want to do. And we, we've loaded up your tool belt with those tools. And they'll be different for different students. One example I use for the students, you want to go into public relations, um, media relations, communications for a team or a league. Adelphi is not a sport management class. Adelphi own, uh, operates or has a drone photography class. I said, you're going to take that class as an elective because you put that on a resume coming from somebody who hired people like you. If I see that on a resume, you go into the top of the pile. Because, wow, now I have somebody who's got their FAA drone license and can operate our drone for our events and other things, right? So that's kind of what the mindset I tell the students. You know, I'm going to do, and we're going to do our best to give you the right curriculum. I modified the curriculum uh, when I was there to make it more contemporary. But I also tell students, you know, look in the mirror. Where are you weak? I think you could use a little more skill thinking out of the box. So I think next semester you should take the comedy improv class. 
right? It's going to get you to think on your feet, react and respond. You know, you need to take the acting class because I want you to come out of your shell, you know, things like that. So I think students today have people like me who are more uh, in tune to, I think you get more one-on-one. I didn't get any of that one-on-one stuff in college, but I think think today most colleges are looking at it that way. It's about, we know what you're going to get in the classroom, but we want to get you closer to experiences. We want to get you closer to people in the business so you can hear what they've gone through. And we want to handpick the classes beyond your requirements that are going to help you succeed. And I tell students, you know, you may love French wine and maybe there's a French wine class and you're paying. Take that class if you really want to. But if it's French wine versus drone photography, maybe you want to take the drone photography class. Greg Boris, president of PowerX Communications, professor at Adelphi University. I appreciate you coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, David. And that's it for another edition of Follow the Money Ball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.